Nick Cage. I'm done. I'm quitting acting. Tell the trades it was a tremendous honor to be a part of storytelling and myth-making. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast review of The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. This is a grounded adult drama about two tough, sensitive men and their unlikely friendship. Hosted by Arnie. Have you seen Croods 2? No, I'm 44 years old. Why the fuck would I see Croods 2? I've seen Face Off and Con Air. Jacob. Oh my God, you're so awesome. And Stuart. I am so happy that you're here. This podcast will be spoiler filled and may contain harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Look, if Harvey wants me to fuck his wife or watch me watch him fuck his wife, that's a no-go. You understand? That's no bueno. We hope you enjoy the show. But I'm going to get this next wrong. And when I do, then I'm back. Not that you went anywhere. Today we're discussing The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Starring Nicolas Cage, Pedro Pascal, Sharon Horgan... Ike Branholtz, with Neil Patrick Harris and Tiffany Haddish. Directed by Tom Gormican. This is Arnie fucking Carvalho, co-host of Now Play. And Stuart. And this is the co-host who smooches good, Jacob. You do smooch good. I really like how I smooch myself, especially. Mm-hmm. That's hot. <laughs> So welcome to a one-off weekend of release review. I doubt that there's going to be an entire franchise here, but when I saw Nick Cage playing Nick Cage, I'm like, this is like my perfect movie. I need to see this movie. We need to talk about this movie. Nick Cage. What does Nick Cage mean in 2022? That's what I really wondered, seeing now that there's a whole comedy about his persona. He's going to play himself. I mean, we've made lots of jokes about his persona. (laughs) Yeah. To me, I think of someone who basically is confined to doing mostly VOD shit, like really crappy movies, and has taken it upon himself to elevate bad acting as an art form. He actually wants us to consider bad acting as something that can be a positive. Here's the thing. I don't know if he considers it bad. Like, I watch there's on YouTube, like Wired or GQ. They always do these things with celebrities where, like, they go on social media and answer questions or they they reply to, like, Google searches. And, like, so as I... He did an AMA on Reddit. So when I was like just watching all this stuff to take him in because he's doing all this to promote it. You talk about that direct-to-video stuff. I've watched some of it. Willie's Wonderland, which is like a Five Night at Freddy's ripoff where he does not speak. And I'm like, oh, they just didn't have the money for him to speak. They only had money for him to show up and do action but not talk. No, that was his idea. He's like, the character didn't talk that much anyway. So I, I really wanted to channel my Harpo marks. And, <laughs> yes. and so I convinced the director to let me do it silent. And I think he's like sincere. Like I think he is a Hollywood elite Maybe mega rich. I don't know if he's resolved all that tax stuff, but like he's eccentric. And I love that. Like, I think he might actually come up with the concept where he's giving it his all in even that direct video stuff. See, for me, Nick Cage has basically four eras. There's early Nick Cage where he is a star and a desired persona you want to get in your films, even pre-The Rock. We talked about him with The Rock, even before he got his Oscar for leaving Las Vegas, doing a variety of things, comedies, dramas, 
Then there's, like, action star Nick Cage, and it started off so great with Face Off, Con Air, The Rock. I know Stuart doesn't agree it started off great. I think it started off great. And then it started to get a little shaky with Snake Eyes. That movie is so bad. <laughs> I saw it in theaters. I was so excited for it. And... And then he started going a little bit more artsy with adaptation, Captain Corelli's mandolin around the turn of the century. And then he just kind of got bad, right? Ghost Rider. It, it is telling in the AMA, like, they're like, would you do Face Off 2? Yes, like, absolutely. They're like, would you do Ghost Rider? He's like, eh, I'd have to see the script. <laughs> mm. And it felt to me like he had petered out. I heard he had to take a lot of roles for the money. I mean... He famously went broke. He bought too many comic books. He bought too many dinosaur skulls that were then reclaimed by foreign governments. <laughs> and so he lost like $125 million. You asked if he's super rich, Jacob. I actually wanted to look that up. Take Google searches for celebrity net worths with a grain of salt. But he's estimated around $25 million. That's it? That's really, really low for somebody with an Oscar and 40 years of cinema... For comparison, John Travolta was around 150, and Robert Downey Jr. is about 550. Yeah, I think 25 million is is like barely middle class in Los Angeles. Yeah, so he had to take a lot of movies. I understood any movie that could pay his million dollars, he needed to take in order to pay off debts and rebuild his lifestyle, and... Then he started taking those movies that nobody was looking at. I think the last one I saw, and I think I saw it with you, Stuart, was Left Behind, the remake of the <laughs> Kirk Cameron film. Yeah, I don't know why we watched that, but we did. It was dreadful. Uh, why would you not? Yeah, because it's awful. <laughs> we thought it would be a laugh riot, and it was just painful. Him sweating in a cockpit for two hours. It was so bad. And I think that was like the nadir of his career and I just wrote him off at that point like he has become a joke nobody's going to pay attention to him and then I start hearing these things like Mandy it's a film that looked like any other Nick Cage film but no Mandy's really good and then Pig Primal Willie's Wonderland I just kept hearing more and more good things about all these Nicolas Cage films some of which were direct-to-video like he has taken the direct-to-video and perfected it into an art form that people wanted to see. Well, yeah, I think part of that's his name. Part of it is his novo shamanic acting style. That, <laughs> like, I heard this, I couldn't believe it showed up in the movie because I saw him seriously talking about this as his acting style in one of those YouTube videos. But yeah, Pig, like, he was listing his favorite roles, like Leaving Las Vegas, his top three, Leaving Las Vegas, Bringing Out the Dead, which I don't have fond memories of. That Scorsese film. Me either. Yeah. One of the worst movies ever. And Pig, like, that movie touched me, and it really touched him. He could not stop talking about Pig. And I know, Stuart, you laugh at me every time I bring that one up, but that was, like, one of my favorite films last year. No, I saw it. I liked the film. You know, here's the thing. You want to see every eighth movie he makes. Yes. Because he puts so much out, there's a lot you do not want to see. But every now and then there's a pig. Let's not forget he was Spider-Noir or whatever, you know. And He was so great at that. Yeah, Mandy, you know, it was eccentric. Color Out of Space, I thought was pretty entertaining. Kick-Ass. I mean, every now and then you're like, okay, I'm grateful for what you bring. But most of the time it's too much. And all the time it's exaggerated to the point that, again, I feel like rarely is it good acting. It might be interesting performance art. But even in like some of his beloved films, like I recently rewatched Leaving Las Vegas 
Not a great film. Great film. Love every frame of that film. I think he is incredible in that film. I weep every time I watch that film. Okay. And he did win the Oscar for that film. But by and large, I mean, yeah, Wild at Heart. I like David Lynch. I don't like that movie. And yeah, The Rock, Face Off, Ghost Rider, Next. We've covered a lot of his work. I love Next, too. If I'd been on that review, I so would have recommended Next. I watched that one pretty regular. Next? More often than not, he's a problem, is the way I would look at it. But every now and then, he's a gift. And so I guess a movie about him would be about seeing him being problematic, but finding that special moment of making his charm work. But to me, this felt like the ultimate comeback film. He's had his comeback, not that he ever went anywhere, but he's had his comeback on this direct-to-video stuff. This is the first Nicolas Cage movie I've seen a trailer for in theaters in years. Even if his stuff had a theatrical release, which I guess Prisoners of the Ghostland did. Don't watch it. It's horrible. You know what? It has Bill Mosley. That's enough of a warning sign for me that a movie is not good if it's made nowadays with Bill Mosley. But I never saw ads for his stuff. If I heard about his stuff, it was mostly from Jacob or on Facebook. It wasn't that he had movies that were advertised other than, you know, Teen Titans where he was Superman or Spider-Verse. I don't count the voice roles in animated things that are basically cameos. The Croods 2? You're going to discount his work in Croods 2? I didn't even know he was in The Croods. I didn't either. (laughs) I had to look that up after this movie. I'm like, was he really in The Croods? But this felt like his comeback had happened and now he's coming back on the big screen playing himself a meta-commentary on all that had been his career. I was so excited. This is the movie I am most excited for this year. Not Doctor Strange, not (laughs) Thor Love and Thunder. This movie is my peak of 2022. I mean, I will say it's not just, oh, what crazy thing is Nick Cage going to do? I was excited for this one because one of my favorite films ever, and one of my favorite Nick Cage films, is a meta-commentary. He doesn't play himself, but he plays the writer of that film, Adaptation, where he plays Charlie Kaufman and Charlie Kaufman's non-existent twin. Yeah, one of my favorite films, and it felt like, yeah, let's get back into that, where he seems to have a knack for that, that self-aware stuff. He got an Oscar nomination for that as well. That, to me, is my favorite Cage performance. He is really good in that film. That's a tricky role to play, yes. Metafictions. Let's just go there. I feel like it was very big 20 years ago to see celebrities play versions of themselves. Charlie Kaufman pioneered that with the Being John Malkovich movie, and, you know, he made one about Chuck Barris being an assassin or what have you. We got all those reality shows, the Osbournes, Hulk Hogan. Scripted. We wanted to get to know our celebrities in a new, personal way. And we had these documentaries that were lies, basically, that showed us that. You know, there were small to large ones. I am always there for this. Like, let's face it. The pioneer of this is Wes Craven, right? With Wes Craven's New Nightmare and Miss Langenkamp. I mean, I don't think he was a pioneer of that. But yes, postmodernism was big in the 90s. Being aware, self-aware is something our generation did. We grew up on TV and we created new fascinations with all of that. 
Now, I think it's harder to do. I feel like 20 years ago, this stuff was novel. And now we have TikTok. We have YouTube. We have the idea that anyone can be a celebrity. And more to the point, their celebrity is the fact that they're confessional and supposedly showing themselves to the world. They're not acting. They're just being themselves. So very few celebrities I can think of right now would be particularly interesting in a metafiction. Nick Cage, I think, is probably one of the only ones you could do that would have mass appeal because he is so cartoonish and has worked in so many different kinds of movies. And has stayed pretty much off the grid as far as social media goes. He doesn't have a TikTok. Yeah, he is totally off social media. When he did one of these undercover going on social media things, he had to create himself all accounts because he doesn't do that. I loved watching that too, where he actually answered those questions, including about getting ripped off for the dinosaur skull. Yes. So you were excited, Arnie. I would say that I was, I had heard good reviews and I felt like Cage was, again, a good subject for this kind of postmodernism, but I don't know that I would have gone to see this opening weekend had we not decided we were doing the show. I think there are a lot of people with you. I don't know what your theaters were like. My screening, there was maybe 20 people in there. Not a lot. It felt like there might have been a lot of hype around this. I saw a lot of advertisement, but I guess people didn't turn out. They're saving their money for Doctor Strange. I saw so much hype around this film. It was constantly online. Friends were talking about it. So I bought tickets for this in advance for Thursday night and Friday night, expecting Thursday night to be so packed and so full of laughter that I have to see this movie twice just to hear all the dialogue. That was my thought going in. So I go in Thursday night. I buy my ticket on Thursday. Only two other seats have sold. So I'm realizing maybe it's not going to be as full as I thought it's going to be. But obviously people are waiting till their last minute to get tickets. Thursday night, 6 p.m., first showing. I am literally the only person there. Mm. (laughs) Throughout the entire film, I have a completely private screening. (laughs) The other two people didn't show up. They didn't show up. They bought their tickets and didn't even come. And nobody even snuck into the theater after a different movie to see this. So the whole movie, the plus side, I got to take my notes digitally on my phone so I could actually read them when I left the theater. Were you able to hear the dialogue over your laughter? (laughs) Yes, I was able to hear all the dialogue. Although I did laugh a few times myself, and that's strange. I I will say, yeah, not a lot of people in the theater. A lot of laughter, though. Like, if it was packed, you may have been right, Arnie. It'd be hard to hear every line. But I didn't have to go back Friday. I only saw the movie once. Yeah, I had about 20 people in mind. But again, this always felt like a smaller artsy thing. I mean, the fact that they're trying to angle it into some large thing is just the fact that Lionsgate isn't what it used to be either. Like, they used to have blockbusters, and now this is as good as they can come up with. I don't know. I felt like... Pedro Pascal, like with the Mandalorian, he seems to be having a moment right now. Like, it felt like that there was things to draw people in. I I just, if it's not Marvel, if it's not some huge thing, I don't know if people go to the theaters anymore. I think the pandemic still has had an effect. I think if it's not a kid's movie or a Marvel movie or the Batman, that people aren't going to the theater still. And honestly, I mean, if you're one of those people 
who thinks, oh, this must be seen on a big screen because it's full of effects and full of explosions. No. <laughs> this movie does not have that, oh, I must see it on the big screen kind of film. No, yeah. In fact, they're going to play into that. We're going to have it largely described as a character piece that decides at the end to be a blockbuster. But yes, maybe because they shot it during the pandemic and had to stay six feet apart, or maybe the budget's not here to really fill out the cast. It's a pretty modest looking film. Directed by a guy who comes from TV. Yeah, I don't know who this director is. People like Workaholics, the Comedy Central show. Okay, yeah. I I guess he's a producer and writer for that. I looked up other things. I was like, oh, he made a movie before. And it's some bromance, Zac Efron, Michael B. Jordan, Miles Teller, three bros falling in love with some girls. Like that awkward moment. Don't bother. I read an interview with him. He has a background in video games. So he decided he wanted to move into films, but he'd been producing video games and had written the script completely on spec, not knowing if Nick Cage would agree and kind of working with Nick Cage's people who would send notes back like, before we show this to Nick, he's never going to go for this thing. And you got to kind of tone down this thing. But from the video game world, he knew what we need before we go to Nick is money. <laughs> from video games, you don't make a game without money. We need money. So he went to all these studios and New Line was like, does Nick Cage know you're showing us this? Has he been approached with this? And finally, it was Lionsgate that's like, if Nick Cage is involved, so are we. I do know Nick Cage, and this sounds like the most Nick Cage thing. Like, when he was told about the role, he's like, how about you get someone else to play me? Because I'm sure he would still get paid for his likeness, but pay me to have someone else play me. The ones that the director talked about that they said would be their dream if they didn't get Nick Cage under heavy prosthetics would be either Daniel Day-Lewis as Nicolas Cage. That amazing. Do it. Okay. <laughs> Or Christian Bale as Nicolas Cage. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I want both of those. Let's make this a trilogy. Same movie, <laughs> just a different actor and a prosthetics every time. Yeah. That would have obviously made it even more eccentric. What's interesting about this one is it is actually going to try to be a Nick Cage movie. All of them. <laughs> the Croods <laughs> and The Rock. Like, it's really going to go for all of that and still work in the ways that his fans will like but also deconstructing and being a little bit film schooly as well. So a tricky balance. Uh, Arnie, why don't you give them the plot? We'll see how well they do with this massive genius. Nicolas Cage is done. After not getting the role of a lifetime from director David Gordon Green, Cage is ready to hang it up. It's not just his acting life in trouble. The actor is forced to live in a hotel while going through yet another divorce. And he's unable to connect with his 16-year-old daughter, Addie, played by Lily Mo Sheen. Unfortunately for Cage, he owes the hotel over $600,000. To pay off his debts, Cage is forced to take the one gig he doesn't want. Cage has been offered a million dollars to be a paid guest at the birthday party of wealthy Spaniard Javi Gutierrez, a Nick Cage superfan played by Pedro Pascal. Cage flies to Spain for the gig, unaware that Javi has an ulterior motive. Javi has written a script that he wants Cage to read and hopefully star in. When Cage arrives in Spain, it surprises the hell out of two CIA agents, Vivian, played by Tiffany Haddish, and Martin, played by Ike Barinholtz. They'd been tailing Javi, who made his fortune through arms deals. In an effort to expand his empire, they believe Javi kidnapped the daughter of a politician, hoping to influence an upcoming election. Vivian and Martin approach Cage to assist them in rescuing the missing girl. 
Cage reluctantly agrees and finds himself torn between the friendship he feels building with Javi and the CIA's mission to rescue the girl. Things get more tense when Javi surprises Cage that Addie and Addie's mother Olivia are at his compound. Javi claims he brought them to help Cage mend the relationships, but Cage thinks Javi has taken them hostage. It's then revealed the arms dealer isn't Javi, but Javi's cousin Lucas, and Lucas has discovered Cage's collusion with the CIA. Lucas demands Javi kill Cage, or Lucas will kill Javi, but the two friends can't bring themselves to off each other. Lucas and his goon Carlos kidnap Addie, so Javi and Cage team up to rescue the two girls, aided by Olivia, who's a masterful makeup artist. Cage infiltrates Lucas's compound and rescues the girls, but is taken hostage. Olivia and Javi's girlfriend Gabriella help Cage escape the captivity. Chased by Lucas, Cage and company crash into the American embassy for protection. On the embassy grounds, Lucas is killed by Cage. Then we jump forward to a movie premiere. Javi and Cage did make a movie together, and Cage gets a standing ovation for his performance. But he leaves the press and publicity to Javi, so Cage can spend the night bonding with his daughter and ex-wife as credits roll. As they start, they throw us for a left turn. I figured this movie was going to be filled with Cage references. That's the whole point, right? We get the end of Con Air and him looking scruffy and bringing that dirty bunny to his daughter. (laughs) But we cut to a kidnapping scene, something that I was not anticipating, something that the trailers didn't prepare me for. I didn't realize that there was going to be this action movie running through the course of Nick Cage trying to get a legitimate role. Yeah, I made the mistake of watch the Red Band trailer and it gave way too much away. Like, yeah, I I wish I hadn't watched that because I knew it was coming up. But I do love like they still have that song playing from Con Air over this whole kidnapping. I mean, they're kind of doing that face off thing with Over the Rainbow, but such better effect because the song actually has a purpose in this scene. Yeah, Trisha Yearwood's version of How Could I Live Without You is blaring as we see this kidnapping. This is effective because you've got two people watching Con Air talking about how much they love Nicolas Cage. And this is like a prologue to the film. And I completely forget about this scene later in the movie. And then when it comes back up again, I'm like, oh, crap. So that's what this opening of this film was. (laughs) Because it feels so out of left field. But it does feel like a Nicolas Cage film. You've got this action score pre-Trisha Yearwood where it's going, bum, 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 bum. And like the deep baritone sounds coming out. It's like any score from The Rock or something like that. And yeah, we just have these two teenagers talking about what a legend Nick Cage is. And it's a good introduction. It's a way of seeing... In this world, how does the audience see Nick Cage instead of how do we see Nick Cage? Do Zoomers and Millennials see Nick Cage the way we see it as Gen X? Like, I do wonder, like, because I also took my girls to see this and they definitely have a favorite actor in this, but it was not Nick Cage. Like, that was not the one that appealed to them. They don't know who he is. Yeah, I mean, again, if you're young, I imagine you do watch... The 90s stuff, the stuff that we've covered, frankly, the trilogy, Con Air, The Rock, Face Off. Yeah, those feel like the ones that you would find kitschy. And if you wanted to have nostalgia for the 90s, Nick Cage brings you that. That's what he would mean. So that's what I take it, that these are just kids that, yeah, are just having a good time. And all of a sudden, Heavy's 
bursting in and really, I mean, it's kind of brutal the way they put her down. Like, you're right. You, you It makes an impact and then you immediately forget it when we jump to Los Angeles and we see Nick Cage, 58-year-old struggling actor, can't even score a part with David Gordon Green. Was he kill evil that night with David Gordon Green? Is that why he learned that Boston accent? Well, David Gordon Green up until recently was not a mainstream director. He would be making the kinds of off-beam projects straight to tape that Cage would be making as well. But yes, he has recently come into his own and gotten a multi-million deal with both the Halloween trilogy and an upcoming Exorcist trilogy and horror movies in general. I don't know if any of them are like King Lear, but Cage is really going to lay on like the compliments and do a whole line reading right there at the <laughs> valet stand to try and get this part. I keep forgetting David Gordon Green does the Halloween films. To me, I always go back to Pineapple Express and Your Highness and just don't like this guy <laughs> because of that. And so to see him basically sucking up for a role for the Your Highness guy <laughs> talking about doing a Boston accent and just the, I won't read for a role, but you'd like me to read for this role, <laughs> wouldn't you? I'm going to read right now. It just... The desperation is so thick, and I'm like, this is probably... I couldn't tell if this really was the role of a lifetime. He keeps saying it's the role of a lifetime, but I couldn't tell if he really meant that. I mean, he's saying it to, not just to David Gordon Green. He's saying it to his ex-wife. He's saying it to his agent. He's saying it to himself that... I couldn't tell if this was supposed to be a really good movie or if this was supposed to be another Cage Fest. I think that's the point, is I think that Cage throws himself into every part he gets as this is the one that I'm going to be remembered for. This is going to be the one to put me back. When he's making Willy's Wonderland or whatever, I imagine <laughs> it was with this level of commitment. Channeling Harpo Marx, once again, like, yeah, Novahu shamanism. And that's what's created the schism within himself. We'll, we'll soon realize that there are two Nick Cages, and one of them is Nicky, the movie star that is uh, the Cage persona I tend to think of, the ghost writer, if you will, <laughs> who's going to pop up into this vehicle and tell this sad sack actor who can't nail the audition that he really needs to start acting like a movie star again. And this Nikki, love all the pulls. The fact that there's two Nick Cages, I'm like, okay, adaptation. They're doing the adaptation <laughs> thing here of a Hollywood person and his super ego, invisible persona. You said Ghost Rider. I'm thinking it's wild at heart Nick Cage with that leather coat and that hair. Yeah, this looks like 90s Cage. Well, he's got the shirt on. It literally says wild at heart. But, I mean, yeah, it is de-aged cage, right? Like, that's one of the ways they got the hair different and dyed. But uh, it's also the fact that they've used CGI to make, uh, again, he's haunted by his past. Why isn't he the big box office draw he was in 1998? Because he bought dinosaur skulls and <laughs> Action Comics number one. And they don't go into that per se. I mean, maybe later we'll we'll see one joke about him spending too much on a statue for himself. But by and large, I guess he is living at a hotel. What they say is that there's some financial dealings that have put him out of the house. They talk about another divorce. There's like a Access Hollywood blip about Nick Cage going through yet another divorce. So I guess the soon-to-be ex-wife has the house. But his daughter isn't named, like, Lois. Like, he has a real son named Cal-El. Like, I was, my expectation at least was, this was going to lean a lot more into the real Cage and what we know about him and, and really have fun with that. And I, it backs off from that. Or maybe that was never in the script. It was in the script. Cage said no. 
Cage was like, yeah. I'm not going to play Nick Cage. I have to play a fictional Nick Cage while protecting the real Nick Cage. <laughs> and the reason he did this is because they sold it to him as an existential art house performance of playing himself. You know, that's how you get his attention. But in the script they showed him, he was a real absentee father off making films, ignoring it. And he's like, no, listen, I turned down Lord of the Rings to be with Cal. I turned down the Matrix to be with my kids. You are not going to portray me as an absentee dad. You're not going to bring my real wives and real kids into this. We're going to fictionalize all of this. So this was Cage's stipulation to do the film at all, is we've got this 16-year-old, and instead of being an absentee dad, he's a dad who just doesn't listen and is going to force his daughter to watch Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yeah, she wishes he was absent. Please get out of my life. Please stop ruining my birthday party because you make everything about yourself and your weird taste. I will say that's just a parent thing, too. Like, we're always trying to push what we love, my wife and I, onto our kids. Like, you're going to watch There Will Be Blood because it is one of the most amazing films ever. And, like, put your phones down. And, like, they hate us the whole time as we make them watch this stuff. So it's I don't think it's just a cage thing. That is a parent thing. You want to share with your kids what's special to you. And, of course, the kids hate it. Like, I mean, yeah. no kid is going to like... A German silent movie from... I don't even like it. <laughs> 1919, yes. That predates the rise of Nazism. That's crazy. Yeah, uh, I, they point out it's 100 years old. I'm like, ouch, it was like 70 years old when I saw yes. it. But <laughs> the fact is, this is Nicolas Cage's taste. You read interviews with him and his performances, and yes, he's going to Harpo Marx. He's going to German expressionism and black and white films. Vampire's Kiss, we got to do it sometime. It's all about that. German expressionism. It's on the schedule. Just hold it. Okay, I'm, good. <laughs> yes. But yes, I, you are absolutely right. Nick Cage has talked a long time about how he has tried to emulate silent movie era performances. Was at the time, because they didn't have sound and dialogue, the actors thought they had to do it really broadly and bug out their eyes and really over emote. We don't need to do that anymore, Cage. We, we can hear you. You can do it with a nuance. He doesn't believe in that. And yet I wouldn't change a damn thing about that scene in Face Off where he grabs that woman's ass and his eyes bug out and he looks towards the sky. I mean, that is what we love about Nick. Yes, sometimes. Uh, yes, the fact that he's willing to go there, that you can double dog dare him <laughs> into giving a bad performance <laughs> to steal the spotlight away from a movie that probably needs a little bit of juice, a little magic. I mean, that is how he blesses a movie is that, well, I, I don't know if he's good for good movies, but he's definitely good for bad movies. He can make a bad movie more interesting. But what he's doing here, I got to give him credit is he's playing Nick Cage normal. We're not getting the movie Nick Cage that you would get. He, In order to make a pseudo Nick Cage movie, he's got to not be making those faces. He's got to not be acting like a performance. He's got to be naturalistic. And there were scenes, the director talked about it, where Cage was like, I want to do this scene like this, and I'm ready to do it, and get my master set up, I'm ready. But then when I'm done... I'll give you what you want, and you decide in editing which take to do. So there's probably an entire other film of this where he's acting like Vampire's Kiss throughout the whole damn movie. I can't wait for the Blu-ray for those deleted scenes. Like, hopefully there's alternate takes. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the caginess is given to his younger persona, Nikki. 
Yeah, they've split. They, it is here, but it's seen as his enemy, really. They, they've they've set it up as the movie star guy is telling him, "You need to just keep working and keep being big. The only thing that matters is your career." And the sad sack character is like, "I can't nail the parts anymore, and my family hates me. They resent the fact that I push my taste on them, and that I'm always on my phone, and that uh, yeah, you get to the." crux the the jump off to act two is not only is he going to go and you know humiliate himself for a birthday party to get a paycheck but he's going to retire from acting he's done after this is all over with live the life of a house cat is i think how he'll describe it and he doesn't even want to do this birthday party he writes it off immediately as no way and People forget, but this shit really happens. If you're super rich and you want you two to come to your birthday party and play your birthday party, they will play your birthday party for like an audience of 15 or however many people you bring. Yeah, I know Beyonce, she'll perform for those Saudi kings, for, do one song for like a couple million bucks. Mm-hmm. Oh, hey, it, the the common people can do it, too. I don't know if you guys know about Cameo. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but you can go online and Rudy Giuliani, I looked him up, 350 bucks, and he'll do something for you. Michael Cohn's only 100 A lot of YouTubers. A lot of people I didn't even recognize, yeah. to be honest. I bought Marjorie a cameo of Dee Snyder for our anniversary last year. <laughs> so, yeah. How I, romantic. <laughs> Yeah, but that's a few minutes versus showing up in person. And, you know, I kind of looked at that like, how much would I have to pay to throw a charity event to get Robert Downey Jr. to show up in person and sign a few things for me? A lot. (laughs) You know, I'm very much having worked in the industry. I didn't meet everybody, but I really do have the belief that it's better to just enjoy the performance. You really probably don't want to know these people. I get the attraction, of course. There's something, that's what movie stardom is. But again, we're living in a different era where that feels like it's more universal, where anybody can acquire that if they want to put themselves in front of a camera. So, yes, that Cage has to go and do a million-dollar birthday party feels accurate. Probably is something that he has been offered many times. Maybe he did it. It's less embarrassing than some of his films. Yeah, yeah, but but I think that there's a leaving Las Vegas quality to this as well. If you remember in that movie, after he loses his job, he's going to drink himself to death in a hotel room in Las Vegas. That's what that's how he's leaving. He's going to he's going to die. I think we're supposed to have a similar idea that that's where Cage is at, that he is can't imagine his career going forward. And so he's just going to go kill himself at this party. And He only does it because he's locked out of the hotel where he owes (laughs) $600,000 in hotel bills. And, you know, I'm laughing internally. I mean, I'm alone in the theater. I feel laughter is a communal (laughs) thing. So I don't, when watching comedies alone, I don't normally laugh out loud. But I got a smile on my face. Neil Patrick Harris is here playing his agent. And he's giving the speech like, like hot dogs on a grill. I'm quitting acting. Call the trades. Tell them it was a tremendous honor to be a small part of one of the oldest human traditions, storytelling and mythmaking. And Neil Patrick Harris is like, I'm sorry, what was that? And you cut out. <laughs> I'm, I'm- yeah, he's, I'm in the hills, bad reception. I'm going to meet other clients, basically. Yeah, again, like it wouldn't kill... Uh, the agent to, to if Nick Cage retired, but it's it's an indulgence, right? You imagine this guy doing this every time he doesn't get a part. David Gordon Green doesn't like me. I'm quitting acting. But again, because this movie is playing so much into other 
iconic Cage roles, weird to see this as Cage's final blowout. And certainly when he shows up there, he's drunk, he's walking into the pool, he's doing things that his Leaving Las Vegas character did. That is exactly shot like Leaving Las Vegas. He even takes a bottle with him and drinks it under the pool like Leaving Las Vegas. There are so many homages here to his other films, but... I know who Pedro Pascal is as an actor. I know his face. I don't really like Pedro Pascal. I mean, the two movies we've reviewed him in were Kingsman 2 and Wonder Woman 84. And in both of those, he was the villain and not very good. But I see him driving the boat. And again, I got a big smile on my face as Nick Cage is on the phone with Neil Patrick Harris. And he's like, he's not going to want you to suck his dick or fuck his wife or watch him fuck his wife. And he's saying these things out loud. And Pedro Pascal, he thinks that this is like a servant driving the boat. And Pedro Pascal's just giving these looks. And I feel bad for Pedro Pascal or Javi as he's playing in this film. I feel really bad that he paid a million dollars and this is what he's getting. (laughs) But he doesn't seem to mind. And I will just say the real surprise of this movie is how much Pedro Pascal steals it from Nick Cage. He is the puppy dog fanboy and absolutely adorable in his idolization. But just showing up, Cage has also gotten involved in a CIA plot. We don't entirely understand it then or now, I'll be honest. (laughs) I don't know why Tiffany Haddish and the other guy, who they were expecting to get off the plane, how they were going to work with them to bring down this cartel, but they decide to put a GPS tracker on Cage and we know he's marked for spy business. Because I watched that Red Band trailer that gave way too much away, like it showed this whole plot point. So the whole time I'm like, okay, that's a misdirect. They're actually like secretly filming because we're going to find out Javi wants to make a movie with Cage. Like I I was trying to figure out like, how are they going to twist this? But no, they're just CIA, I think for real the whole time. Yeah, they're investigating that kidnapping from the beginning was what we're going to find out. Tiffany Haddish, I didn't see the Red Band trailer. I didn't know she was in this film. I like Tiffany Haddish. I watch most of her movies. I find her funny. This other guy, Ike Barinholtz, is in so much, but he's just kind of that face. He was in Suicide Squad. But what I find funny is in the Lego Movie 2, he played Lex Luthor, and Nick Cage played Superman in that Teen Titans movie. And so I liked that dichotomy that we got those two together. Did Haddish, like, did they recast G.I. Jane 2? Is Haddish doing that now? Like, (laughs) I didn't understand the shaved head. I'm like, if you're CIA trying to be undercover, like, that's like a look you would remember. Tiffany Haddish has one mode, and she does it well, I suppose, but she's like, I'm just going to tell you what I think, and I don't care, and it can be quite refreshing to see her blow in and destroy things, is the way that I really think of it. Her as a CIA agent, her playing this role, doesn't make a whole lot of sense here, but we have to just go with the premise that the CIA has ulterior motives for using Cage here as he's getting acquainted with Spanish Dr. No, is what he calls it, as he's boating over to this luscious palace and finding out that this guy grows olives or something like that, meeting his agricultural assistant. Again, I thought this was all code for drug cartel. (laughs) So did I. But we're seeing... On the face of it, someone that should be evil, but when you look into the eyes of Pedro Pascal, who could ever believe he's anything other than a fan? My daughters, they love Pig. For them, this film was all about Pedro Pascal. They loved him. Like, they were laughing at all his lines, his reactions, that he's such a fanboy. Like, so maybe you don't need to know who Nick Cage is to enjoy this, because they love Pedro, and, like, they're fully on board with that character. 
Me too. I have to say, I mean, I started off by saying I didn't like him in the movies we've reviewed him in, and I say that as a counterpoint to how great he is in this film. I did believe he was an arms dealer at the beginning, because the one trailer I saw showed car chases and things, and I thought it might be kind of a Weekend at Bernie's thing, where (laughs) Nick Cage is with Pedro Pascal and other people are trying to kill Pedro Pascal, and Nick Cage doesn't know what's going on. Because of the lavish lifestyle he leads, I thought he was an arms dealer, but he is also a legitimate super fan, and just... Like you said, Stuart, the word puppy dog is perfect. And yet, he also has an ulterior motive. He wants to get into filmmaking. He has a script. Everybody has a script, I'm sure, for Nick Cage. He, Much like these filmmakers, he had a script he wanted Nick to read and maybe star in. A more bold movie would have made him the villain, right? We wouldn't have outsourced all of the problems to my cousin Lucas and thus made it an easy write-off that he can like have his Hollywood dreams come true, it would be more entertaining. I mean, there have been movies about that, right? That mobsters that want to get in the movie business. Get Shorty's my favorite. Yeah, exactly. I feel like they could have made Javi more sinister, but it would have meant I wouldn't have liked the performance as much as I do. Might have been good for the tension. Who knows? But yes, he's the one that shakes Cage out of his funk. Cage is passed out in the pool, passed out in the bed. This is a guy that's going to improvise an action scene and make him jump off a cliff. And before you know it, Cage realizes that, hey, if I just have to do smaller movies, like if this is my the rest of my life doing little projects, I don't know how much littler they could be than the movies he's already putting out. But he's saying, yeah, I'll play the gay uncle in the Duplass Brothers next <laughs> micro budget. That did make me laugh because, yeah, that, that does sound like a Duplass Brothers film. <laughs> it does. And again, it makes me wonder, do people know who that is? Like, some of this is so insider, I do feel like it's going to be niche. There is an element to this that feels like an explosive Nick Cage blockbuster from the 90s, but most of it feels like a Hollywood insider baseball joke. Yeah, there's that great scene where they jump off the cliff, and I love, like, Cage is like, that was much higher than I expected it to be. I could have died. <laughs> but then... Javi's talking about his favorite movies and like Paddington too. Like I do feel like that's an insider joke because there was a thing for a while. I think it finally got a negative review on Rotten Tomatoes, but for the longest time, it was like one of only a couple of films to have 100% and everyone's like, Paddington too. Which guys, that movie's good. We should review it. Like I bonded with my daughter, much like Nick Cage does. I bonded with one of my daughters watching Paddington too. I've heard this. It has that reputation of being better than anyone could conceive. Hugh Grant's so good in it. Yeah. That's I hear this. I think I've only heard about it from you, Jacob. I know we've talked about it before. Apparently, the director and writer weren't aware that it was like a meme. Wow, that's surprising. <laughs> what Javi describes here is what happened to the director as he watched it with tears streaming down his face and it was just such an emotional <laughs> thing for him that that's why he included it. It is out of left field because it feels like we were talking about Paddington 2 five years ago or something like yeah. that. It doesn't feel like a recent enough reference, but it is kind of fun when talking about what are your top three films that it's got to be Paddington 2, Face Off, and Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. 
Yeah, Nick is on board with two of those. But yes, <laughs> he gets introduced to the idea. And this is a setup for the actual character development that he's going to be having. That like there's a kind of movie that he is not aware of that he should be more open to. Just as there are other people in his life who he should be paying more attention to, like his daughter. And we've had uh, one moment to remember that there is a kidnapped teenage girl uh, when he's on the plane. Just a little bit of a news blip about the Catalan president's daughter being grabbed, and he quickly turns it to The Rock. But we are now going to soon be getting back into what the CIA wants him to do after Cage has a kissing <laughs> a moment with uh, Nikki, in which Nikki's telling him, don't do these small movies. That is hysterical that they end on this, like, deep French kiss. It's not just, like, an Italian two-cheek kiss. It is, like, this full-on embrace with himself that is disturbing to me. I don't know if you guys know this one sketch from Conan that is, like, burned into my brain of Max yes. Weinberg <laughs> making out with himself, but it has disturbed me for years, and now Nick Cage goes right next to that. And this is where I appreciate that it's Nick Cage in this role. Like, they could have gotten a number of people that would probably play themselves. But, like, Nick Cage making out with Nick Cage. Like, yes, that's what Nick Cage would do. Like, I expect that. And that's why it's funny to see someone make out with their younger self. But because it's Nick Cage, there, there is something meta about that that really makes it funny for me. And that's a Nick Cage bring. He told the director, I really want a French kiss myself. So we know Cage has to bring something crazy to the movie. This is what he brought. But because it involves Nicky, it works. If he'd been carrying around like a dead animal around his neck on a chain this whole movie <laughs> as Nick, I don't think that would have worked as well. It's actually, I would say, they don't do it enough. I feel Agreed. like the Nikki thing kind of goes away. They do it at three pivotal moments, and this is the second one, but I feel like this probably should be the enemy. It shouldn't be just some nameless cartel goons. He should be really fighting this movie star image of himself in a much more direct way than it just ends up just kind of being a skit. But anyway, the point is, we now have Haddish, the other guy, throwing him in the back of the van and saying, look, think of your daughter. There's another young woman that is kidnapped, and the man you think that is so lovable is the one responsible. And he has to do a scene from one of his own movies. You know, I think that's what entices him, is if he can't be an actor, he can do this action star thing for real. It sounds easy enough. The CIA is going to cut power to the house briefly, and then he has four minutes to get in there and get data off of the security camera tape so they can see where this girl might be hidden. And so here's where we start to change. As you mentioned, Stuart, when Javi and Nick are talking about the movie they're making, they're like, it'll start off as this character-driven piece, and then it will become an action film and something for everyone. Here's where we start to get some of the action beats as in Act 2. And I was wondering, where are they going to take this? What, what are they going to do with this action? Because another meta film, it's in our book of underrated films, one I picked was JCVD, Jean-Claude Van Damme, where he plays himself in a bank robbery situation, and he doesn't want to be the action star. He's like, no, that's my movie persona. i actually not going to do these roundhouse kicks and beat these guys up. So I was wondering, are they going to lean into that where, yeah, Nick Cage, he's done a lot of roles, but he does have an action phase in, in his filmography. Like, are they going to really lean into that? Are they, are they going to show that he's incompetent. I do think they show he's incompetent. But again, I, I'll say overall, I thought there was going to be a lot more meta commentary going on. And I guess maybe Cage didn't want to do that, it sounds like a little bit. And, and they don't really lean into that that much. I don't need to know anything real about 
Nick Cage in order to enjoy this as a scenario. It's fine if they want to create a fictional struggling actor Nick Cage. Works well enough for me. But I do feel like the missions just kind of become like sketch comedy. This feels like Saturday Night Live when we have this bit about him drugging himself as he's trying to get back into the control room and, you know, falling down. The the punchline is good. That Tiffany Haddish screams action and and no matter if Cage can be passed out, you know, (laughs) dead to the world... He hears the word action. He's going to leap up and be ready for his scene. It's a good joke, but it's a bit, you know, that this is sketch comedy. I thought that they were going to end with a rock callback because he has this antidote in a needle. And I thought for sure he's going to have to stab himself in the heart with it, just like in the rock. But he just stabs himself in the leg. Maybe they didn't want to go too deep in that stuff because they're going for an audience that is more casually familiar with his work. You know what I mean? Like, yes... There are Nick Cage super fans that are going to want those little details. We just watched The Rock. But I wouldn't have known that a week ago if I saw the movie. Yeah, but you wouldn't have to know it. You just think, oh, that's how the cure is taken. Right. And so what they've encouraged him to do is stay longer. This is the birthday party. He He's getting his million dollars. He would be on the next flight home, except he's kind of one- He's loving the acting challenge of all of this. And two, there is a young woman's life involved. So he is going to not do Javi's script. I do think that's a funny detail. (laughs) I read it. I really thought it was brilliant. I'm not doing it. But let's come up with something else. I think part three is he's really bonding with Javi. I do think that there's something there that's revitalizing him. Maybe the hero worship, maybe the fact that somebody wants to give him a part after he didn't get a part, that, you know, he's like, I wrote this for you, maybe stroking the Nikki ego a little bit, but I just get the impression that it's not killing him to stay with Javi a little bit longer. And talk about this being a series of skits. I really like this next skit. Like, to get inspired to write this new movie, we gotta drop acid. (laughs) This is the time I laughed out loud. Yeah. This acid scene, I couldn't hold my laughter in, especially when they're doing the acid or like... Those two people are following yes. us. And I'm like, are they following them? I mean, we know the CIA is after them. Or do they have a couple old looking things? And the climbing the wall to get over it. And the you're heavier than you look. It's my head. And use me as a human stool. And the final punchline, when Javi just walks around the wall, I'm, I'm busting up laughing completely alone in the theater like a crazy person. I knew that was going to be the punchline. There's going to be a door right there. Yeah, just walk around the roll. But I love how intense they are. Like, that Javi is going to be, like, falling to his death. Like, my whole family, in the whole audience, all 20 of us there are cracking up at this whole scene as they're, like, tripping and, yeah, expressing their emotions for each other. It's a lot of fun. Did Cage ever do a drug movie? I'm trying to think. Fast Times... He has a small part in it. Barely I don't really remember. <laughs> uh, adaptation, there's a part where they get the orchid extract and go trippy. But by and large, this feels like that Fear and Loathing movie that Depp did here. <laughs> I couldn't get a Cage reference. If it's there, I don't I don't know the movie. Yeah, I, I didn't think of a Cage reference during this scene, but I laughed a lot. And this is where I'm really impressed with Pedro Pascal, because he's the one getting the big laughs from me. Yeah. It's, I found myself surprised that I came for the Cage and I'm staying for the Pascal. 
Yeah, I mean, he's good. I mean, I really think that you owe it to yourself to see something other than Wonder Woman to, to evaluate his work. He's a very... Well, I've seen some of The Mandalorian. I, I don't know if that's fair either. He's behind a mask there. But, like, he was very good on the show Narcos is where I was introduced to him. I'm not surprised that he's very good, but it is surprising to see how well he's paired with Cage here. And, and again, the, he's... Yeah, Cage is almost a straight man, and he's the one that's kind of funny because he'll be the one's... Or at least for me, he's the one delivering the laugh lines when he's like, but you said you could drive and did all your own stunts and gone in 60 seconds. So, (laughs) of course, you can drive us back. Stone out of your mind. I want to look that up if he really did all the gone in 60 seconds thing. Not a good movie. I expected to love it with Nick Cage and... Angelina Jolie, but I'm curious if he really did all his own driving. I'm thinking this movie is spot on, though. I think that they are factually correct in what they're saying about Nick Cage. I don't know if he really did it, but he probably said it in press material. I mean, that's the (laughs) thing. That's the joke of it, really, is that actors lie all the time about what they do in a movie, and then if held accountable... He pulled a Brie Larson? Yeah, I don't even remember that movie. But this is the point where we really, again, we like Javi so much that when Cage gets to the room where they think the girl is being kidnapped and Javi's like if you go in there it's going to change the way you feel about me (laughs) we're hoping that it's not true and this is the scene I think is for Cage fans. I can't wait until this comes out on digital or Blu-ray so I can really pause and look at everything because I'm looking, I'm like, Chainsaw, that's Mandy. There's the, the pearls from The Rock. My wife's like, why are there huggies in the background? I'm like, Raising Arizona. Like, a lot of fun stuff. I, I wish I could have caught more of it. But what I loved was some of the more minor details. Like, there's a cast of his face that they probably did for prosthetics. I don't think that was a prop from a movie. And... You know, and then that sequin pillow, I have one of those too. It's Captain America and you like push the sequins and it becomes Iron Man. It came out during Civil War. That There's a sequin <laughs> pillow though of Nicolas Cage's face all distended to be flat is completely hysterical. But there's like an empty vodka bottle from Leaving Las Vegas, a photo of him from Oscar night, just a national treasure poster, a clapboard from the rock, the scene. It hit close to home is all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you have a Howard the Duck shrine like this. (laughs) Yes, I do. If uh, if Leah Thompson ever came to my house, she might be weirded out the way Nick Gage is. Do you have a wax statue of her? (laughs) I do not have a wax Leah Thompson yet. And Cage is cool with it because he's narcissistic enough to want to have all of this stuff, too. He he doesn't mind that someone is into his career as he has been. And in fact, that's been the strain of his family, so that they've never cared about his work in the same way. So it feels like they're long-lost brothers now, and that they're... Yeah, we Javi is exonerated. He doesn't have the girl here. So I think at this point in the movie, I figured they weren't going to make it that he was a bad guy. That he w- it was going to have to be someone else. I still thought he was the bad guy. This just wasn't the place. I mean, the way that they go into it with Javi saying outside, if you go in there, it may change the way you feel about me. It may change our relationship. But the joke of that mannequin, it was in the trailer, but I still, I I don't like it when people laugh at trailer jokes. I'm like, you know that joke? But I still laughed at Nicolas Cage going, that is grotesque. I'll give you $20,000 for it. <laughs> yeah, Javi paid $6,000. He's going to pay $20,000. Always overpaying, just like with that Beatles record in The Rock. But he's called out. This is when they start to really bond. And I love this moment. It feels so caged. Like, when he starts talking about this film dual Christ figures like they this has never been done before like I love when Cage just 
talks about his weird ideas for film and acting. Like, I, I feel like this is a real moment from Cage. How would dual Christ figures even work? I would love to talk <laughs> about know. that in a film. <laughs> yeah. I guess it doesn't matter that people aren't going to get Von Trier, Cassavetes, Eritreu. Like, like that. this kind of name dropping, this is where it really feels like film schooly in a way. Like, if you go this direction, typically mass audiences, if that's what they're hoping are showing up, they're not going to get that joke. But I guess... It's it's just funny enough that Cage is basically sold on the idea that he is making a movie now and wants to tell the CIA that they're wrong. It's like Dick Cage said, there's something in this movie for everyone. The entire audience can laugh at Pedro Pascal walking across a wall and Nick Cage seeing a grotesque version of himself. And then people who read more or see foreign films are going to catch the Von Trier jokes and things like that. And they're coming fast. Like, I don't remember Von Trier's name being dropped. I heard Cassavetes and I'm like, okay, I get the joke. Improv. I didn't hear Von Trier though. Yeah. It was all there. Again, this is in his mind what he's making here. You know, (laughs) Vivian, Tiffany Haddish, the CIA is trying to remind him, no, we're trying to rescue a girl, so introduce a kidnapping plot. And (laughs) again, you didn't know by this point when they're overdoing it with Javi skeet shooting and loading the gun and all. Like, it's pretty clear now the joke is we're to think that he's going to be this heavy, but of course he's not. I started to suspect that. I started to wonder if it wasn't him. But again, the trailers had kind of sold me he was. And so I just went in predisposed to he was going to be the villain. I think you'd have to be dealing with that by this point in the movie. If he, in fact, Cage would have to confront the fact that he was working for a mobster by the middle of this movie. And the fact that they're still keeping that coy. And he is getting mad, but it's only because that would ruin the movie. (laughs) We're not making that kind of movie. How can we have a kidnapping plot if we're making my dinner with Andre? And so, yes, he wants to have Nick work through his problems with his daughter. That's clearly why he's inserting this. And so he's just going to tell the ex-wife and Addie that Cage is dying and you need to get here in his last moments of life. I was a little bit confused by the relationship with Olivia because there was the news clip talking about Cage going through a divorce and yet Olivia is clearly Addie's mother and she seems to care about Cage and be giving Cage counsel like a long-term girlfriend or like a current wife. You know, you just think of the ex-wife relationships as often being contentious and things. And so I'm like, wait, is this his current girlfriend? But if it's his current girlfriend, why do they have a 16-year-old together? It just took me a while to realize, I guess they're just ex-spouses who stayed really good friends. Yeah, they're raising a kid together, and they've had to do that, and so... Yeah, but I've, I know people who have raised kids together and fucking hate each other and are so nasty. Well, sure, but I think you're, you're to get the idea, the way that she dropped him off and said, you know, don't be this guy anymore. We get the sense that, that Cage, Nikki is the reason why he doesn't have a happy family. Because of Nikki and because of his career obsession, he hasn't been able to work through his family problems. He hasn't paid attention to them. That comes out here in these, this family session, but nobody's buying it. The, the irony is Cage is sincere as he's giving this apology about being obsessed with work, but everyone's like, eh, I don't buy it. This is not working here. The tears, you know, the daughter is still angry that if she doesn't like what he likes, that she won't be liked. And and that's the conflict. 
that's kind of a breakthrough moment. We saw them in therapy together, and the daughter was just on the phone. Here, the daughter finally says, I'm afraid if I don't like what you like, you won't like me. So that is a true connective moment that I don't feel they've had. And while they may not believe what Cage says, and I get the impression, the way they play it, that Cage has said this exact speech a hundred times before. It's like a non-apology. It's like, I'm sorry that I tried so hard, (laughs) you know? It's like, (laughs) it, it was one of those, he's not sorry for the right things yet, but the daughter finally comes out and expresses what's been bothering her. Yeah, and this is also where we switch gears and announce that Lucas calls his cousin in, Javi, to say Nick Cage is working for the CIA, and yes, I'm the one that kidnapped the president's daughter. I don't think it really matters, but we never find out how the cartel figures the CIA. I guess they just always assume they're being watched by some government agency, but yeah, this does feel like it's almost out of nowhere, this Lucas walking into the film all of a sudden. The bodyguard that was going into the control room left a recorder, and so they have some dialogue of Nick talking to Vivian about his character. Okay, I missed that. Okay. But more to the point, yes, all of this backstory, none of this really makes sense. We're told that there's another cartel that they're merging with after the election, and, you know, they're expecting some guy to show up they haven't seen in 15 years, or, like, all of that is just called setup. (laughs) We don't really care about that plot. That plot's not going to get resolved. This is about Nick Cage's family crisis, and so all we need to really understand is that we can now hate Lucas and fully embrace Javi and feel bad for him that he's been tasked with killing Cage. Yeah, I can't say I follow the whole arms dealership plot and merging of cartels. And what I really don't get is when Javi says his father was head of the cartel and then his cousin took over, but Javi is the figurehead. Like, Lucas is making everybody believe Javi's in charge. Yeah, he's, he's like Queen Elizabeth. So, I don't follow it. I don't think it's the focus of the movie. I don't think it's very well thought out. It's just an excuse for Act 3 to become a 90s Nick Cage action film. <laughs> is there something in Guarding Test that would help us with that? I don't know. Yeah, I haven't seen that one, but they call that mm. one out and even show a clip. So, I was, I was wondering if there's something more there. You know what I would have loved is they did film a scene or at least write a scene where Nick Cage has a dream that he's on a mountain and talking to God. And God says, I don't mean to be that guy, but I absolutely love Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. (laughs) And Nick Cage goes, yeah, that one was very underrated. (laughs) As is apparently Captain Corelli's mandolin. Hope to never know. (laughs) This movie's funny. (laughs) But the main reference here is face-off, right? When we see Javi and Cage coming at each other from opposite ends of the screen in slow-mo and the opera and (laughs) what have you, and they have to go off to the cliffs to figure out Act 3, we're to be thinking about Wu. Vans versus Gucci's. And I have adaptation a lot on the mind because this is a film that's self-aware. They're like, how do you do a third act? They're going to talk about it. And try it. And like, again, I don't want to spoil that adaptation because that movie is genius. And like, you should be able to just experience without knowing all the spoilers. But this ultimately is a comedy. Yeah, it's like, let's pull out the, the golden guns from Face Off. The, the meta commentary, it, it's more there for jokes. I, I don't feel like it's exploring the massive talent of Nick Cage. It's making a lot of jokes and having some fun. And they drop a line that those guns from Snake Eye or actual real functioning guns. 
Alec Baldwin and I both hope that's not really the case, but <laughs> it's an excuse as to why we can have Nick Cage with the golden guns preparing to shoot Javi, and Javi's preparing to shoot Cage, and they can't do it. They've become like soul brothers. They love each other. Yeah, swapping shoes and then having to run in them, because <laughs> there are real killers there. Lucas has sent gunmen, and we get a third act chase. They they wanted to figure out the third act. We're in it now. Car chases, braking so that motorcycles hit the back end and flip in. All those cliches are funny, because it's implying that a life in the movies prepares you for spy work. And that Cage doesn't believe it'll work, and grabbing that motorcycle helmet, cocking the guy, and Javi gets hit, and Javi's asking Cage, are you okay? Meanwhile, Cage is pissed that they swapped shoes. You gave me these penny loafers <laughs> to run in. And another joke is like, you can run to the car fast because I saw a national treasure. How bad you run? That was my stunt team. Not according to the behind-the-scenes featurette. <laughs> that, that was a good joke, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They Again, they already said that joke with Gone in 60 Seconds. You worry about a movie like this getting too much in references and not pioneering enough, but it, it, it's still funny two times in. Yeah, I do feel, though, like National Treasure is talking about what is the appeal to millennials and, and Gen Z with Cage. I do feel like National Treasure is a millennial film. Like, that came out, I'm like, this is a dumb Indiana Jones ripoff. But I've seen our fans. Like, they want that retrospective. Never seen it. Either one. And I don't want to make it seem like this is an episode of Family Guy with only reference humor. Because you also get jokes about... <laughs> <laughs> During the chase, Nick Cage is saying, I should always trust my shamanistic instincts as a thespian. Nouveau shamanistic. That's his acting style. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of humor here that's not references, but because we're a movie podcast, I'm calling out the movies that are referenced here. And this is asking you to call out those references. I mean, that that is part of the fun, I think, of this film. But it's not relying only on no. that because it would get really old very fast. And my daughters are cracking up throughout this film, and they basically know Pig when it comes to Nick Cage. So they're having a good time, despite not knowing the references. Mm -hmm. It might actually make people like them want to go find the source material. They might actually want to see more Cage movies because they, they're hearing about it. What is Face Off? But anyway, Addie's been kidnapped, and they're bringing the parallels between the kidnapped president's daughter, Maria, and Addie more closely. That this has all been about what a young woman needs, and yes... Vivian and Martin have been killed. Maybe the shock of the movie is I wouldn't have expected Tiffany Haddish to go down in a hail of gunfire. Yeah, that was a surprise. Like, she gets shot and it looks like it's in the shoulder. I'm like, in the movies, you live through that. You get up and have a whole action scene after that. <laughs> I feel like stuff might have been cut because she was yeah. shot in the shoulder. I have no doubt that Martin, the Ike Barinholtz character, is dead in that scene. We don't see him get killed, right? He's just, like, dead in that chair when they show it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's been tortured, I assume, to death. But I thought Vivian would come back later on. I It just feels like she should have after this, maybe intervened at the embassy or something like that. But they don't need her anymore. We've got Nick Cage action star who's going to rescue the girls. Yeah, actually, it's not Nick Cage action star because he's the one saying to Nick Cage, don't do it. And this is, I think, important. Nicky shows up one more time to say, you know, he's been goading this guy to go big and be this big extravagant person. But now that lives are on the line and people are dying, he's saying, don't get us killed. Don't be the hero. I feel like this could have been carried through the movie. Maybe it's a special effects thing. They couldn't afford to have Nikki as part of the climax, but I really feel like you want Nikki and Nick to be the ones riding in here. 
Agreed. Or Nick to turn into Nikki or something to really embrace the bigness. No, they tried to make it a moment for Olivia, who it's been mentioned, she was the, they met, they fell in love on the set of Captain Corelli's Mandolin. She was the makeup artist. <laughs> is that a real movie? I have never heard of that oh, one. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Christian Bale, I think, is in it. Wow. <laughs> I've never seen it, but this movie makes me want to. I know. He, he learned two songs on the mandolin for it. No. This movie <laughs> makes me know I don't want to watch it. Uh, but yes, they, they blow in in some latex to do some Borat kind of jokes here how is there not a face-off joke here when he gets found out i thought for sure lucas was gonna pull off that prosthetic i'm gonna take your face off like (laughs) oh i wanted it so bad i think it's there i think you pointed it out that's it's just that simple yeah you i'm gonna tear your face off because face off they don't say the line (laughs) they don't need the line it's a visual pun but the makeup is good you it is (laughs) that really if that person walked into the room i would not think that is nicholas cage i would think that that is honestly a retired jeweler living in florida in the tracksuit and everything <laughs> what they're calling back in this moment is nick is doing the monologue the thing that he read for david gordon green at the beginning he's doing that boston king lear death speech with the ha ha He's still not doing the accent well, though. I thought, like, he was supposed to nail it. No. And that is, I appreciate that. <laughs> but he yeah. still can't do Baston. Yeah, he did it just enough to know that he is, doesn't have it nailed down, which is a, a funny detail that, that Cage is getting right about himself. And then we just get a chase where I feel like they need to give the women something to do. So Nick Cage is taken hostage. And now Gabriella, who... I almost forgot her in my plot summary. We haven't brought her up in this review, but this is Javi's love interest slash agricultural person, and yet the two of them haven't formed a relationship yet, and somehow, through the action with Nick Cage, Javi is going to get the confidence he needs to tell Gabriella how he feels, and of course she feels the same way. This feels perfunctory and unnecessary, but it's in the movie. It's necessary, but it's the difference between good and great. A great movie would make you care about this relationship. A good movie means that we can gloss over this and nobody cares that it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I feel like this whole ending and I don't want it to go on a whole long time. This is around 100 minutes. That feels right for this. Mm -hmm. But because it's Cage and now you're doing the action thing, they are going to do that Michael Bay-like cinematography towards the end. But I I thought bigger explosions or something, this feels very small and very quick and like, let's just get it done. And maybe that's a budget thing as well. Budget. That's what I kept thinking. In this ending, it's very obvious that they don't have the money to do a big action scene. It's not a Michael Bay moment. And it maybe should be. It's not big enough, as I think what I would say about this ending. It feels like it's over really quick. Javi jumping out with the golden guns and maybe getting shot and killed. Gabrielle joining him doesn't really register. The daughter throwing a switchblade to him. That's face off, right? Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, repress that. Yeah, and face off the daughters being held hostage by Nick Cage or John Travolta playing Nick Cage or John Travolta and has that knife and stabs him in the leg to get away. Oh, yes. It's coming back to me. Yeah, yeah. Like salt in a wound. We don't see the stabbing. This is making me wonder if they don't have the coverage or didn't have the effects. But we see Nick Cage's face with the stabbing, 
But we don't see Lucas at all. We see like an arm at, fall off screen as he does the stabbing. And this is a rated R film. I would have thought if you're trying to give us a Nick Cage thing, you'd give us a shot of Lucas's body. But yeah, this moment is about gore or action. It's it's actually just so that they can surprise us. And suddenly Demi Moore is there and a much prettier daughter. And we <laughs> realize, oh, they've turned this into the movie. Yeah, now it's, it's Get Shorty. Yeah, the... the I got it right away. Like, my daughters are like, huh, why Why is it a different person all of a sudden? Like, I knew what they were doing. I was so confused. I was like, wait, I didn't even catch that was Demi. You didn't? No, I didn't. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen Demi since Charlie's Angels 2, okay? So I didn't catch it. And I'm like, wait, is this supposed to be the real thing? And we've been watching the movie the whole time? Or is this the movie? I'm a little confused that it finally came through. But I thought Demi might be Courtney Cox for a moment. <laughs> Yeah, it had been said early on that the in their drug-fueled state, wouldn't it be brilliant to make the movie about us? And that's clearly what they did. Whatever Javi script had been that they sent to him, it isn't what they made. They made a literal interpretation, bombastic though it may be, of the... Majorca adventure that they had had together and presumably it's going to be a big hit if we see the reaction in the premiere as being true to box office everyone seems to love it in Cage's back and I know my girls were super worried that Javi was dead so they were really happy when he shows up he was at the premiere just not in the theater because he couldn't like stomach seeing himself I'm surprised they didn't like pepper this final scene in with more cameos because it is supposed to be the Hollywood premiere we got Neil Patrick Harris there, happy to have Nick as a client again now that he's back on top, but... Demi Moore and Neil Patrick Harris, again, speaks to the fact that they didn't have the extravaganza maybe they could or should have. Not enough people wanted to come and join the party. But there is a moral here, there has been character growth. Cage, the man that cared so much about his movie career that he couldn't care about his family, is going to take a night off, is not going to go to the Vanity Fair party to celebrate this great new hit that's going to bring him back. He's going to stay home and watch whatever his daughter wants to, and that just happens to be Paddington too. They can recreate the moment from the Grand Canyon where she put her head on his shoulder <laughs> and you get some genuine emotion out of Cage here at the end that he's exactly where he wants to be in the happiest moment of his life. And again, it's really convenient. It's not like they've had a real healing, but he's going to watch her movie. And again, for a comedy, for a hundred minute comedy, I want it wrapped up quick. I'm happy with this ending that it is a happy ending. And I think we hear Nikki in the background, too, as they pull away. There's still a duality there. Is that Nikki yelling? I thought that was Cage finally embracing his Nikki persona. Yeah, hard to know. Again, that feels unresolved. And who knows? Maybe there'll be a sequel. Not based on my audience, but Jacob <laughs> Stewart. Do you recommend the unbearable weight of massive talent? Jacob. Yeah, I had high hopes for this like again because it's nick cage and as i'm watching this they're like well in the third act you got to do this it felt very adaptation to me which i've i've said a few times one of my favorite films and this is not adaptation like i think Stuart, you said good but not great and, and i'll agree with you there like i would love to see charlie coffin take a crack at this script like there could have been something really great with nicky versus nick and all that stuff but that doesn't make this a bad film. It, it makes it not a great film, it, but it's still a lot of fun. And again, my daughters knowing very little about Nick Cage, basically just pig, 
they loved this film. They laughed a lot because of Pedro Pascal, who was the real revelation in this. Because I've seen him, yeah, The Mandalorian. I've seen him in a lot of things. And it's a face I recognize, but it's never a, a, a role where I'm like, oh, yeah, like this, this is a great actor. I want to see him more. And this, if Nick Cage is important to this film, so is Pedro Pascal just as important as a buddy team-up film. Like, so much of the humor comes from him, which is kind of ironic that it is a film about Nick Cage's massive talent, but it's aided so much by Pascal's performance. And, you know, I feel like, again, we, we talked about this at the beginning, when in this day of Marvel, or you gotta be a comic book movie or a kid's movie. 2018, I don't know if you guys ever saw Game Night, a little comedy with Jason Bateman. Like, I thought it was really funny. Didn't do anything in the movie theaters. And I feel like we just don't get comedies like these anymore because they don't make money. Like, you, you gotta spend 30 million and two people, or maybe just Arnie's gonna show up to see it in the theater. But, <laughs> like, I appreciated, like, this is a pretty solid comedy. Like, I laughed a lot and that's the important thing in a comedy so yeah if you want a deep exploration of Nick Cage you might be a little bit disappointed but there's a lot of fun to be had here a lot of laughs I had a good time I, I recommend Nick Cage's massive talent Stuart yeah agreed I think it's a good movie it's just not massive that's the problem it's like you're hoping with this quirky title and, and all that they have set up to really go on a journey and it's a lark it's just kind of a fun little thing to do that really, I guess if it accomplishes anything, it reconciles the two Nick Cages, the cuddly romantic audience that likes Crudes too, and the cartoonish <laughs> action hero extravaganzas of Face Off. Both of them are served here, although I think Crudes too gets a little bit more love than the Face Off. There's not money in the budget to really go big. <laughs> yeah. But they appreciate all that Nick Cage has done over the years, and he seems to be having a great time reminding us of his uh, persona, uh, just the things that he's pulled. Like a performance artist, he's done all this stuff over the years. This is his chance to sort of trot it all out in a Vegas review and remind us why we should like Nick Cage in 2022. But as I've already stated, the secret weapon here is Pedro Pascal, who is adorable as the puppy dog, the Elizabeth Shoe that's not going to let this drunk, uh, you know, kill himself <laughs> and pull him back and find the love for his craft again. Thank God Pedro Pascal doesn't pour liquor down his own chest for Nick Cage to drink. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe a cutscene. Who knows? But uh, yeah, the movie's kind of scattershot, impressionistic, done by people that do sketch comedy on TV. But I do feel like the relationship, these two actors, give this whole thing more weight. It's not an unbearable weight. But they give this comedy a little bit more weight than it probably otherwise would have had. And it's a good time. I think on the scale of things, you've mentioned Get Shorty. I like that movie better. Ed Wood, I like better. Disaster Artist, I like better. This is probably on the level of Bowfinger. And uh, so if you like self-referential comedies about Hollywood, yeah, you're going to have a Bowfinger time. Which is a good time for me. Yeah, I love Bowfinger. <laughs> Put it in the book. I like Bowfinger. Three for three on Good Not Great, Stuart took the words out of my mouth. And in my mind, that was a little bit of a disappointment. I mean, I had unrealistic expectations for this film. Unbearable expectations. <laughs> I did. I, I, I expected a sold-out show full of laughter and with a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes and every review showing up on my letterbox being five stars. I went in expecting, like, life-changing. I mean, I just went <laughs> wow. in. Okay. Well, I think any movie would disappoint. <laughs> I just went in expecting, like, one of my favorite films of all time has just been released. A new contender for my top three list. 
And you know what? High expectations can often damn a movie. In this case, I still had a very good time. I still laughed and smiled. And yes, Pedro Pascal won me over, which I didn't think was possible. And it's a good movie, but not a great movie. It's kind of a sloppy movie at points. And I think what I was expecting was more of a full movie character exploration of who is Nicolas Cage. I expected less of it becoming a parody, sort of, of Nick Cage action films. And I think the more they tried to get into the action and the arms dealership, the more the movie started to fall apart. It was the part of the movie that I'm pretty sure the filmmakers were least interested in, that Nick Cage was less interested in, and that I'm less interested in. But I still think it's a good movie. With the exception of Ed Wood, I like all those movies about Hollywood making that you mentioned, Stuart. And, I mean, Get Shorty would be a contender for my top three list. Bowfinger is a movie I can't get enough of. But yeah, definite recommend. Put it in that catalog with the others. And judging by how it's doing, I'm guessing it would have been a contender for the underrated films I recommend book. I mean, I don't know what the expectations were. I'm hearing that it might pull in 10 million this weekend. Oh, that's not very much. <laughs> uh, you know, like, it, like ultimately, this is a movie that's going to find its audience at home. Yeah. I feel like it wouldn't surprise me if in five years they might want to do a little follow-up because it's this little movie everyone feels like they discovered and, and enjoyed. But more important, the question asked is cage back to being a mainstream star is he doing anything like big that we've got to cover is there anything in his resume that we've got to get to i i've heard you guys say national treasure i would argue i'd like to do a whole coen brothers retrospective and raising arizona would be in there but i'll just put it this way there are two major films works of his major in my mind that we will be covering in the next year we will be getting to cage at least twice yeah, I look forward to any cage. As I mentioned, I would just like, you know, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, <laughs> World Trade Center, Wind Talkers. I've never seen Wicker Man, which you put in the book, Cotton Club. I mean, I would be down for anything cage on now playing. I don't want to do Bringing Out the Dead again. I remember really disliking mm -mm. that one. <laughs> and and you, you talk a big game now, but if we actually did do a Nick Cage retrospective. So many movies, Google doesn't know how many. I Googled how many movies has Nick Cage done, and it just said at least 122. Like, Google doesn't even know. Like, th that would be a huge retrospective. <laughs> yeah, you would tap out by Firebirds. You wouldn't even make it into the early 90s. You just couldn't. <laughs> Admittedly, rewatching Amos and Andrew would be a little hard these days. Right. That's exactly what I'm saying. But again, like, he obviously operates a very special place in movie celebrity and stardom right now. And may it continue to burn weirdly and brightly. So thank you for joining us for this unbearable. Hopefully this show was bearable for you. Hopefully you enjoyed this show. And this Friday, if you want more character studies with Hollywood celebrities, it's not a self-referential one but ben stiller remade a 40s film i think the secret life of walter mitty or adapted a really old short story <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it is a little bit more postmodern characters that are meeting themselves yeah it 
kind of has a similar vibe and maybe overlooked. It was a hit in its day, but I feel like in the realm of Ben Stiller comedies, not ones that people talk about too often, we're going to talk about it for April patrons. It's actually the first of three patron shows coming out over the next four weeks. So if you're not a patron, I still consider this the best value in podcasting. It's $10 a month or more, and you're going to get about 70 bonus reviews of all types. I mean, just any type of movie you're looking for. I'm sure we've covered one or more of them from Monster Trucks, which is like the outlier we always go to for (laughs) silly kind of kids films we've covered, to New Jack City, Apocalypse Now. So we've got some classics. Yeah, Oscars to the Razzies, we cover them all. Parasite recently. Yeah, another Oscar winner. And then this Friday, Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Next Friday, the Scarlett Johansson A24 pick Under the Skin, kind of a sci-fi art film. And then two weeks after that, Jack Nicholson's Oscar winner, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So three shows in four weeks for our patrons of $10 or more. If you go $25 as a patron, you also get all the Harry Potter shows. Or $50, you get the Fantastic Beast shows and the Tom Cruise shows. Because two weeks after Cuckoo's Nest, we're going to be covering Top Gun 2 for donors and patrons. So many bonus shows for our supporters at patreon.com forward slash now playing podcast or through Podbean at NowPlayingPatron.com. And then next week, we return to some comfortable territory, Marvel again, as we lead up to Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, submitted for Emmys as a limited series, not as an <laughs> ongoing series. So we cover Hawkeye. <laughs> and before we sign off, we have another giveaway to announce. This week, we're giving away five digital copies of Uncharted, courtesy of our friends at Sony Pictures. If you remember, we covered Uncharted when it debuted in theaters back in February. Now it's available to watch at home. And to enter, you just need to subscribe to our InFocus newsletter, which you can do at the homepage of nowplayingpodcast.com, or be a member of our Facebook listeners group, which you can get to from facebook.com forward slash nowplayingpodcast. If you do both, you have two chances to win. We'll announce winners on May 5th. And good luck to everyone who enters. And before we go, I think we do want to just give a shout out to a few of those patrons that have been with us. So here we go. Andrew Zirko. David Kraft. Jay Trekker. T Ward 9090. Elm Street 94. JRB Horticulture. Are these secret ads for something? <laughs> Which is not the same as Four Seasons Total Landscaping. <laughs> or 420 horticulture, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Kendra Tennille. Andy Crake. Clark Fisher. Human Error Hauntings. 23 stars. Chris Cross. Not the band, but it oh, might be Christopher Cross. I was about to jump. Yeah. Uh, he's probably a very big fan. And let's not forget Wes Zimmerman and every patron that has ever contributed to Now Playing. We're so grateful for your financial support. It means a lot. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And next week, we're back. Not that we went anywhere. You know what? We're pulling out. I don't like this. Get out of there. Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. I cried through the entire thing and made me want to be a better man. We hope you enjoyed the show. Dude, front up, up. 
Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. What's the worry here, Nick? You've lost some of your talent? No. Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. I'll never forget you, Rams! On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including Star Wars, Batman, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What is your favorite movie? That's one of those questions that's impossible to answer. You can't just limit it to one. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. I'll take it. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'll give you 20000 for it. And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. Okay, I'm going to deal with all that. Now Playing Podcast is produced and edited by Arnie Carvalho. What do we know about this guy anyway? Is he into something strange? Associate produced by Jason Latham. One of the most ruthless men on the face of this planet. Now playing credits read by Brock. What did he say? He says he loves you, but he went in a different direction. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated. Don't lie to me. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. I would never do that. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. What have you got there? Divine inspiration. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2022, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Say hi to your nephew for me. This is Arnie fucking Carvalho, co-host of Now Playing. And Stuart. And this is the co-host who smooches good, Jacob. You do smooch good. I really like how I smooch myself, especially. Mm-hmm. It's hot. <laughs> so welcome to a... Oh, I blew my microphone out. Um, hold on. <laughs> Shit. I was going to do that one, but I'm like, oh, Arnie's going to do that for sure. Well, what's funny is I was going to do the one who smooches good. <laughs> well, then I would have pivoted to the other one. <laughs> I knew, I actually knew both that both would be done. I couldn't say who was going to do what, but. Yeah, I just, I felt like shouting, so I decided to shout. Yeah, I don't know how much my family would appreciate me shouting right mm-hmm. now. They're all sleeping. Testa. <laughs> <laughs> Played by Lily Mo Sheen. Any relation to Charlie Sheen? It just hit me with nope. that. No, nope. <laughs> it's uh, 
Michael Sheen and Kate Beckinsale's da daughter. So we're about to do Underworld. Then <laughs> all the the soap opera that came out of that. Uh, this is her. <laughs> wow! I I just got again. I got to wonder: Is Tiffany Haddish the actor, or was she played by Jada Pinkett Smith in the actual <laughs> film? <laughs> Yeah, her name's in my fucking mouth, Will. Deal with it. Yeah, I, I feel like you're just baiting Will at this point. I Look, any promotion's good promotion. Let, let's get him talking about now playing. Get him punching. Yeah, let's do it. I, I would love that lawsuit. I could use the money. <laughs>